Our old our, our scripture reading this morning is from John chapter one. John chapter one, and we will commence at the verse number one. So John chapter one, the verse one. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them give he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I speak, he that cometh after me, is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father. He hath declared him. Amen. And may the Lord's blessing be upon the reading of his holy and inerrant word. We will. Well, we're turning again to John chapter 1 this morning. John chapter 1. And I would like to turn your attention to the opening three verses. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. I would like to speak this morning on the subject of the revelation of Jesus Christ. But let us unite in prayer before we come to God's Word. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful to Thee today that we are not awaiting a voice from heaven to communicate Thy Word to us, nor are we relying upon it being spelt out in the stars or being passed verbally from mouth to mouth, but Thou has given us Thy Word in this written form. Thou has preserved it and kept it pure in all ages. And we have in our own mother tongue a faithful and reliable translation for which we are so thankful to thee. But Lord, it's not enough that we merely own a Bible. 
or that we've brought it with us today. It's not even enough that we read over it with our eyes. We need thy word to be planted deep into our hearts. We need thy word to be food to feed us and to strengthen and sustain us. We need thy word to encourage us and to direct us upon the right paths above everything. We need thy word to have that clear vision of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can think of the Greeks who came to Philip. They said we would see Jesus. And our prayer to thee today is that through the holy pages of thy word, that we too would see Jesus, that our hearts would burn within us now as we think upon him, that we would be changed and transformed with that clearer image of who he is and how we are to follow after him. Lord, even as we get to know that loved one more intimately, our our love for them deepens. Well, even as we think upon our Savior today, May our love for him intensify and grow. So forgive us our every sin and close us in with thyself now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the writer of this book is the Apostle John. And quite often, whenever you begin writing a book or an essay or a letter, your first line or your first couple of lines are often very important. They set the tone or perhaps give uh, uh, an indication as to what you will be speaking on. Well, the Apostle John, whenever he writes his gospel account, he begins with this uh, statement, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. A very different uh, introduction from all of the other gospel writers. But before we jump into this, let's Uh, stop for a moment and look at the author of this gospel account. It is the Apostle John, and the Bible has much to teach us about him. We are told that he was the son of Zebedee, that he had a brother called James, who was also one of the disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. He had been a fisherman who had worked with his brother James, and most likely worked alongside two other disciples, Peter and Andrew. John had been a disciple of John the Baptist before he left and became a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was also one of the closest confidants of the Savior. We refer to them as the inner circle of um, Peter, James, and John, who were always found in in those most intimate encounters with the Savior. He refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. For John, this was something remarkable. He doesn't call himself the disciple who loved Jesus. He didn't boast of the love that he had for the Savior. He spoke as one who was humbled that the Lord Jesus Christ loved him. And dear friends, there isn't a more humbling thought in uh, in the whole world today that the Son of God loved us, that he gave himself for us. John outlived all the other disciples. All the others were um, uh, believed to have been martyred, but the apostle John, he lived to be about 93 years old, and he died on the Isle of Patmos. 
of old age. He wrote his gospel account and he also wrote three epistles and he wrote the book of Revelation as well. But as we think of this gospel that he's writing, let's have a a bit of a, a further look at it. It's not what we would call a synoptic gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are synoptic gospels. They run through the life of Christ. But the the gospel of John, it doesn't do that. It's notably different from all of the other gospels. And his style is different from the other writers as well. The other gospels, they record events in the life of our Savior. And they speak of facts concerning uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. But John doesn't write in a narrative way. John's style is very different. John writes as a preacher because that's what John was. He was a preacher of the gospel and he writes as a preacher would preach uh, to his audience. Uh, John writes to speak to the soul. Gregory Nazine, an ancient writer called Gregory, I'll not be able to pronounce his surname here, he said that Matthew wrote for the Hebrews Mark for the Italians, Luke for the Greeks, but the great Harold John, he wrote for all. John wrote with an evangelist heart seeking to speak to all. But why is his gospel so different? Well, ultimately, we say it's different because God intended it to be different. We have to remember that John here is writing under inspiration. As Peter said, holy men of God speak as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So God, the Holy Spirit, moved John to write this gospel account. So he's writing many years after Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and he doesn't need to confirm their writings. He doesn't need to go over what they have wrote and said, yes, these things are true. No, the Holy Spirit has moved John to record events that were not written by the other writers. You'll notice that in John's gospel, he mentions nothing of the incarnation. He doesn't mention the temptation of Christ. There's no record of the Sermon on the Mount or the Transfiguration. Furthermore, John mentions very few miracles, and he mentions even fewer parables as well. But John does record exclusive events that you will only find in John's gospel, and they are not found anywhere else. We can think of Nicodemus. We can think of the woman at the well, the woman taken in adultery, the Lord Jesus Christ washing the disciples' feet. We can think of uh, Peter being restored um, after his um, uh, sin of denying the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's other uh, exclusives as well in John. But his gospel has unique distinctions. Two-thirds of his gospel relates to the last week of the life of Christ, what we would call the Passion Week. So 66% of John's gospel is dealing with that one week in the life of Christ. He gives more attention to that Passion Week than any of the other gospel writers. And he also gives an extensive revelation of God the Holy Spirit, as told by the Savior himself. Much of the teaching that we have on the Holy Spirit is found in John's gospel as John relays it from the lips of the Savior. In chapter 1, John starts his gospel in a very unique way. He doesn't record the birth of Christ like Matthew does and Luke does. He gives what we might call a prologue. 
in verses 1 to 18. And this prologue is very special in its own way. He makes simple, short statements about the Lord Jesus Christ. In this prologue, he declares the existence of Christ, and he also declares the very reason why the Lord Jesus Christ came, before he then launches in to the story of Christ's life. If John had only recorded verses 1 to 18, if that had been a very short epistle, but it still would have been a tremendous blessing uh, to us here today. But John also clearly reveals in this opening prologue his reason for writing this gospel. And this is the reason. To convince men and women to become disciples and believers and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. He writes to persuade the readers of the truth of the claims of the gospel. And this is something that John continues to do, not just in the prologue, but throughout the whole gospel and indeed through his epistles. In John 20, verse 31, at the end of his gospel, he says, But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. So John says, This is the whole purpose of why I've been moved to write to you, so that you would believe the gospel. Because John had a heart, a heart that wanted men and women and boys and girls to believe the word of God, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't want to see any lost. He didn't want to see any die, not having faith in the Savior. He wanted to see them all come to him. Well, John, more importantly, was writing to exalt and glorify Christ. John was besotted with the Savior. He loved him, and he wanted to magnify him even in his writings. So verses 1 to 3 are Christ-centered and Christ-exalting verses. Immediately here, at the start of his gospel, John brings us to the very person of the Lord Jesus Christ, even though he hasn't mentioned him by name. The name of Christ isn't mentioned until a lot later, but John is speaking about him. The unlearned reader is maybe left to wonder, who is this person? That John is speaking about. Who is this word that was made flesh? But the believers left in no doubt. They read these words and they say, Ah, there is my beloved. There is my Savior. There I see my uh, Lord Jesus Christ in these opening words of John's gospel. So let's think this morning on the revelation of Jesus Christ. Four headings uh, that we'll lift out of these opening three verses. First of all, let's notice Christ's title that is given to him. Christ's title. Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So John uses the, the term Word to describe the Lord Jesus Christ. But why does he do it? Why does he use this uh, phrase uh, instead of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Why doesn't he just openly state and declare just who it is? Or why doesn't he go further and use maybe a familiar term like Messiah or Savior or Redeemer? Why does he use that phrase, the Word, the Word? Well, again, this is something unique to John. 
We don't just find it here in John's gospel. We find it in his epistles as well. 1 John 5 verse 7. For there are three that bear record in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. Again, he could have said the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. But he didn't. He said the Word. Well, perhaps John does that here in his gospel. Because he he maybe didn't want to immediately alienate his Jewish readers in the opening verse. The hard-hearted Jewish people resented Jesus Christ being called the Son of God. And John did identify Christ as being the eternal Son of God. We see that in verse 14. He calls Jesus the only begotten of the Father. Now that word begotten is a proper biblical and theological term. At the Council of Nicaea in 325, it says that Christ is begotten of the Father. He's of one substance with the Father. We sing the hymn, Begotten, Not Created. Now, sadly, many modern translations have removed that word begotten, and some have even put in the word created. Well, dear friends, the Lord Jesus Christ is not created. There was never a time when he came into being. He is the eternally begotten Son. He's the only begotten. That word begotten means of the Father. Now, you and I, we are of our fathers. We are, in a sense, created by our fathers. But we're not of the same substance as our fathers. We don't think like our fathers. We don't have the same wills as our fathers. But the Lord Jesus Christ does with his father. That's what we can say he's begotten of his father. He's of the same substance, the same mind, and the same will as his heavenly father. But what is the meaning of this name, the word? Well, John Calvin, he notes that the title Word refers to the fullness of divine wisdom residing in him. He goes further and says that as the Word, Christ is the perfect self-expression of God, God's messenger to the world. To the world. Because as the Word, he is the actual Word of God. Every book in this Bible points to the Lord Jesus Christ. All 66 books point to him. In fact, if there was no such person as the Lord Jesus Christ, or if he was never manifest in the flesh, if he never came to the world, dear friends, there would be no no point in us having a Bible. Because the whole purpose of the Bible is to communicate the Savior to us and to communicate his so great salvation. So the whole purpose of this book is to reveal Christ. That is why he is the Word. He's the Word of God. That's the title that John gives to us. But let's pause and think, how can you and I know God today? How can we know God? Well, we can know about God by looking around and seeing the world and seeing creation, but that's not enough. That won't bring us into an intimate relationship with God. The only way, dear friends, that you and I can know God today is through the Lord Jesus Christ. The Savior himself declared, No man cometh to the Father but by me. He said, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. So the only way that you and I can know God at all, the only way that you and I can ever experience the salvation of God is through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he is so vital. He is the wisdom of God revealed to us. He reveals to us that we are sinners. 
He is the image of God revealed to us. We see holiness in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. By thinking of him, we see just how far short we have come of God's perfection. We see that the Son of God was holy in all his ways, that he never sinned, he never broke the law of God. And then we see that we haven't lived a life like that. But he did, and he did it on our behalf. We know God because the Lord Jesus Christ teaches us about the Father's will. He said, I came not to condemn the world, but to save the world. That's why he came, to be a savior for you and for me. And he is the person of scripture. Do you know Martin Luther, the great German reformer, he said he looked for Jesus in every word of the Bible. Not just the general Bible, but in every word. And as we go through our Bible, we would see Jesus. Who was it that went after Adam in the garden saying, where art thou? Who was it walking in the garden? I believe it was the Lord Jesus Christ. When, when coats of skin were made for Adam and Eve, who made them? Again, I believe it was the Lord Jesus Christ. Adam and Eve were taught the system of the sacrifice. Who taught them that? I believe again it was the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the whole history of redemption points to his coming. The whole of the Old Testament was waiting for the prophecy to be fulfilled, for the word to be fulfilled, and it was when he was born as a babe in Bethlehem's manger. Every psalm in the Bible sings of him. All of them. Every prophet points to his coming. And then in the New Testament, we have his birth. We have his perfect life. We have his atoning death. We have his resurrection, his ascension. We have his spirit poured out upon his church. We have his kingdom being increased and extended. This book is all about Christ. He is the word of God. But it's not enough, uh, friends. That we just know that this Bible is about him. It's one thing to know the, the Bible is about Jesus Christ. It's another thing to know the Jesus Christ of the Bible. To know him as our personal saviour. To know him as the king and lord of our lives. There's many people today and they're, they're sat in big churches. And they're maybe sat in uh, universities. And they maybe have some great titles as, as professors of religion or theology. And they maybe know the Bible better than you and I do. They can maybe quote the order of the kings and so forth. But they don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior. They know about him. But they don't know him. And dear friends, we could fill our heads with head knowledge and wisdom that can be profitable and useful but we can fail to know Jesus Christ personally the apostle John knew him intimately that's why he called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved he marveled that Jesus would love him and so you and I we need to know him intimately we need to know him as our savior and our lord so we've thought first of all of the title given to Christ here in verse 1 the word of God. But secondly, notice that Christ is eternal. Christ is eternal. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning. Now the phrase in the beginning, where does that turn our minds to? Well, it turns our minds back to Genesis chapter 1 and the verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, John is using this phrase in the beginning to show that the Lord Jesus Christ preceded creation. Because in the minds of many people in his day, 
just like in the minds of many people in our land today, they think that Jesus Christ had a beginning. They think there was a day whenever he was created and came into being. And John is trying to show his readers here that that isn't the case in the beginning. That is in the beginning of the world, at the beginning of day one of creation, the very first moment in the beginning was the word. He was there in the beginning. Psalm 90 verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Proverbs 8.23, I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning, or ever the earth was. The Savior himself said in John 17 verse 5, And now, O Father, glorify thy me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. So in his great high priestly prayer, the Lord Jesus Christ is addressing the Father, and he's praying for the glory um, that he had before the world was even made. So the Lord Jesus Christ did not have a beginning. He was not created. He is eternal. You can normally identify error with an individual or group when you examine them on the person of Jesus Christ. The Jehovah's Witness, for example, they claim that Jesus Christ existed in eternity. Of course, they can't deny that. But then they claim that the Father created the Son. And of course, this is a heresy. And this is something that men struggle with. They struggle to understand this about God and understand this about the Savior, that he is eternal. And they struggle because you and I, we only know time. Time to get up, time to go to work, time to eat, time to drink, time to be at church, time to go to bed. Time rules our lives in many ways. But time never existed until God created it. People talk about millions of years ago. Well, first of all, there's no such thing as millions of years ago. Even the well-intentioned Christian might say, well, millions of years ago in eternity before God created, there was no such time in eternity. Time was only created 6,000 years ago. Just to further bamboozle you, uh, space and matter weren't even created until day one of the creation week. So time, space, and matter didn't exist until creation But the Lord Jesus Christ existed with the Father and with the Holy Spirit before the foundation of this world. So the one that we have gathered to worship today is not simply a good man. He's not simply a perfect man. He is the one that we call the God-man. He is the eternally begotten Son of the Father who has been with the Father from all eternity and is God. Now, sadly, some today, they... They deny the eternal sonship of Christ. They try to claim that there was a day he became the son, even in evangelical circles. Dear friends, that's wrong. He's the eternally begotten son. So he is the word. He's eternal. Thirdly, notice he is divine. Verse 1. The word was with God, and the word was God. The word was God. God. Verse 2, the same was in the beginning with God. Now, it does not say that God was with the Word. You and I can say God was with me. He was with me through that trial. He was with me through that difficulty. God was with me. And yes, God was with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
But that's not what John wrote here. He says, the word was with God. Christ was with God before the foundation of the world. There has always been that union between Christ and the Father. Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image, us and our two plural words. John 14 verse 9, the Savior said, he that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And in John 10.30, he declared, I and my Father are one. So the Lord Jesus Christ declares that he is divine, that he is fully God, but he is also fully man as well. Now, trying to understand and fathom the uh, Trinity is something that's very difficult for our simple minds to do. One writer said this. He said, it is rashness to search too far into the Trinity. It is piety to believe it. It is life eternal to know it. And we can never have a full comprehension of it until we come to enjoy it. And there's never been a break in the Trinity. As hard as it can be for you and I to understand these things, sometimes we have to just leave it and accept it by faith. But there's never been a break. There's never been a time when the Father and the Son fell out or the Holy Spirit wasn't uh, united with them. Another writer said, he said, Ask the Son if it were ever without its beams. Ask the fountain if it were ever without its streams. So God was never without his Son. Even whenever the Lord Jesus Christ was incarnate in the womb of the Virgin Mary, there was never a break in the Trinity. There was never that broken unity. We maybe sometimes use the expression that he left heaven, but because the Lord Jesus Christ is omnipresent in all places and all, and all times in his divine nature, he was always in heaven, always maintaining that unity with the Father, but in his humanity he came to this earth. And dear friends, that is something that should really make us pause and, and contemplate that the Son of God took a real humanity and took a real human body to be made like unto you and me for the single purpose of saving our souls. He, let, he came into this world taking that real body living that impeccable life that you and I could never live, and then dying the death of all deaths in our place and in our behalf. The divine Son of God became a reproach, not because he deserved it, but he did it in our place and as our substitute. And how that ought to fill our hearts with gratitude and adoration today. Maybe we can be so taken up with our own lives. What I want to do. What I want to accomplish. What I want to be. And we can be so self-obsessed and so self-absorbed that we blot out anything around us. And we pause even, or, or we fail to pause even for a few moments and ask ourselves the question, why am I here? Why has God put me in this planet? Why has God brought me into a Christian family? Why has God brought me up in a Christian country where the gospel is freely preached? What purpose does God have for my life? Well, the purpose that God has for your life, dear friend, is not to follow your own heart's desires, for that will lead you to hell. 
the purpose that God has for your life and my life is to believe on his son that he sent into the world to be our savior. Not to reject him, not to abandon him, but to come to him. That is the purpose of why you and I are here, to know Christ, to live for Christ. Well, fourthly and finally, we see here in these verses, we see the title of Christ, he is the word, we see that he's eternal, we see that he's divine. Fourthly, we see that he is the creator. John 1 verse 3, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made, made that was made. All things were made by him. Now that doesn't mean that he's the creator outside of the Father's will, of course not. He's the creator in perfect harmony with the Father. The Son never did anything that the Father didn't approve of or that the Father wasn't aware of. Ephesians 3 verse 9. And to make all men see what is in the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 8 verse 6. But there is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom all things, and we by him. Uh, Colossians 1.15, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. So dear friend, you fall into that category. You were created by him. And Paul says you were also created for him. You weren't created for yourself. You weren't created to live after your own desires and pleasures and will. No, you, the Lord Jesus Christ made you for him, not to be disobedient, not to be reprobate, uh, not to disregard him. No, he created you for him so that you would live for his glory, so that you would live to exalt him and to magnify him. The problem is we live in such a self-obsessed age that we blot out the thought of even doing anything for anybody else. But the Lord Jesus Christ made us for him. So the question we should ask ourselves today, am I living for him or am I living for myself? You were made by him and you were made for him. And dear friends, we must live for him then. As the creator of this world, does he not deserve the glory from this world? Of course he does. Well, I come to a close here this morning. The apostle John had a passion in his life, and that passion was the Lord Jesus Christ. If I was to stop and ask you this morning, as you're going out the door, what is your passion? What is your passion? You might, you might not say it out loud. You'll maybe tell me what you think I want to hear. But maybe in your heart, you'll, you'll have to say, well, actually, my passion, it's my business. It's all I live for. It's all I get out of bed for in the morning. Or my passion's my family. And it's a good thing uh, to be passionate for our family, to love them and care for them. But we can make an idol out of them too. My passion is to live for my family. If my family were to disappear, I don't know what I'd do. I'd have nothing to live for. My passions, my hobbies, 
my recreation. I get through the week just so I can go and do my hobby on a Saturday. Well, dear friend, can I tell you what your passion should be? It should be the Lord Jesus Christ because he's worthy. He's worthy of your attention. He's worthy of your love. He's worthy of your praise. Nothing else in this world is, is worthy to be compared with him. That's what the Apostle Paul said. I reckon, I reckon nothing is worthy to be compared with the, the glory that we shall see in Christ Jesus. So if the Lord Jesus Christ isn't your passion today, dear friend, then you have a problem. And that problem is that you have things in your life that you prioritized before him, and they're called idols. And the Lord Jesus Christ will never settle for being second best. He didn't come to be your part-time savior. He didn't come to be the savior at the very end of your life after you've lived for you. He came to be your Lord now. He came so that you would glorify him in every aspect of your life, with every breath with every thought, with every action, with every deed. So let us die to self. Let that old man die today. And let us live for Christ. And if you're here this morning and you freely admit in your own heart that you have not yet even began to uh, even think of living for him, you're maybe saying, well, what do I do? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ said, he that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. So it begins when you, dear friend, come to Christ and you say, I don't want to live for me anymore. I want to live for him who loved me and him who died for me. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful to thee for thy word that shows Christ in all his glory, in all his excellency, and in all his fullness. And we pray that we would be those who live for him and who love him let us not live to ourselves. Let us live for Christ. Should he require us to go to the uttermost parts of the world, let us be willing to go and say, I will go for him because he went to Calvary for me. Bless thy word to our hearts this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.